It's the Quotidian. It's our 18th episode with Mr. Adam Sobsey. Welcome back to the Quotidian Podcast. I'm Bradley Dennis. This episode is a special one for me, and a bit longer than usual. I'm speaking with the multidisciplinary writer Adam Sobsey, the author of Bull City Summer, a collaborative documentary project about minor league baseball, which evolved out of Sobsey's nearly five years covering the Durham Bulls for the Independent Weekly as well as the writer of a biography of rock music legend Chrissy Hind, which Pop Matters called gloriously comprehensive and a noble effort and a satisfying read. He's written about sports and culture for the Paris Review, for Grantland, and for Town & Country, and he's won several awards for his playwriting, as well as the grand prize for arts criticism from the Association of Alternative News Weeklies. But what makes this conversation particularly special for me is that Adam was one of my closest childhood friends and we've stayed in touch ever since we first met. This is a particularly candid episode as we recorded on Adam's front porch in downtown Durham, which displays itself in the background of our conversation in vivid voice. We spoke about how creativity expresses itself in inherited generational trauma, about the innate gifts of creativity versus the hard-won gains of effort and study, and about the similarities between writing and drumming. This podcast is sponsored by Carolina Commons, who exist to help individuals, teams, and communities develop their creative skills to solve problems and to express their voices. Thank you as ever for being here. And now, please enjoy the plain spoken and honest talent of my good friend, Mr. Adam Sobsey. Welcome to the Quotidian. Mr. Sobsey. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, you too. It's been too long. It has been a while. What have you been up to? I know you were saying the pandemic has kind of further isolated you, but you were already pretty hermetic. I should probably say this off the record, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> the pandemic was actually extremely productive for me and some of the happiest times of my life That's as a grown-up occurred during the pandemic because it came along and took away from my life a lot of the things I don't like to have to do. Yeah. I'm aware that we all have to have ways of making a living, but I didn't really want to be having to go do my job 30 or however many hours a week I was doing it. Yeah. So that went away and through the government programs, I was getting a an unemployment check essentially that paid me just enough money to get by. Wow. And 
wasn't making Heather and me rich, but we could live on it if we were careful. This is partly because we have this house. So the pandemic began and it had been, I guess to backtrack to my, you know, my earlier existence as a writer, I, I started out as a playwright went to graduate school for that, wrote plays, they've been produced, I've produced some of them myself. But in the last decade, I haven't really been writing any plays, and that was fine, I didn't feel the need to do it. The ideas that I was having for things I wanted to write didn't seem to want to be on a stage, they wanted to be on a page, so I just wrote that. And I also realized at some point that the several years that I spent writing about baseball were essentially me writing plays where the theater was the games instead of whatever action was going to take place on a stage but mm. I you know, I would I would go to these games as nominally a beat writer whose job it was to report on who won and who hit a home run or whatever but really yeah. I would come home and write 2500 words that were sort of the theatrical reconstruction slash essay slash inquest into the nature of minor league baseball until four o'clock in the morning and then post it on the Indies website and then go to bed and I I had no real understanding of why I was doing that, but I was just kind of compelled to do it. Mm. So honestly, I sort of consider those six years that I was doing that, or however long it was, to be part of my career as a playwright. And then there were several Mm. years where I was writing things for the page. Um, And not terribly long before the pandemic began, I had this idea for a play kicking around in my head and I thought I will probably not do this. I don't really write plays anymore. Writing plays requires an almost completely different mindset and set of tools than writing for the page does. And then less than a month and a half after everything shut down, I started writing that play. Hmm. And I wrote that in about, I guess it took me about six weeks or two months to write the first draft. It's been rewritten some since. And then uh, I got into writing this other thing that had been on my list of things to work on, which was a book about the experience that I had in Southern Europe, especially Romania and the Caucasus in 2019. Heather and I went there for three months. And it was a very, it was a life-changing experience for me uh, because I was going to the country where my great-grandparents had emigrated from. Right, Romania, right? Romania, yeah, yeah, northeastern Romania, the province of Moldavia. I can tell you about the actual contents of the book another time, but I'm not sure what I was expecting to find, but it wasn't what I did find. Mm. And it was quite a shock to my system. So I wrote that book in 2020 and 21. Mm Mm-hmm and just finished revising it. I'm actually tr- trying to get an agent right now uh-huh. uh, for that book. And the long and short of it was, the last couple of years were very, very good for my mindset as a, as a writer and for my habits, you know, speaking of rituals and so on. I didn't, this, is, this will sound like a funny thing to say because I have, I studied playwriting in college. I then went to graduate school for writing. Yeah and was writing all in between. There was five years between college and graduate school. But I didn't really learn to write until after I got out of graduate school. Huh, why do you think that is? Because ultimately, writing is not something that gets taught in a classroom. There are a lot of things you can learn, and a lot of things I did learn, and I was exposed to a lot of approaches and ways of thinking about plays and fiction and everything else. 
But ultimately, what writing actually is, I think for the vast majority of writers, and I think for most of the ones who've produced quality work, it's an experience of waking up, sitting down in front of your computer or your notebook or your typewriter or whatever you work on, and basically just sitting there for some number of hours until you can't do it anymore, <laughs> and then doing it again the next day. Yeah. And A real discipline. Yeah, and it, until you've developed that, that habit, which is almost a bad habit, <laughs> mm -hmm. you haven't really learned how to write. I suppose there are writers who are really successful of just writing whenever they want and somehow or another staying with it, but I don't know really any writers like that. This would explain why I've never written anything longer than 12 pages. Yeah, you just Precisely have to keep... lack of discipline to sit down and just keep plugging away at it. But I think there are, there are writers, maybe this different for like poets or mm -hmm. people who are writing more short burst pieces. Mm -hmm the difference between sprinters and marathoners essentially yeah. where it's probably is possible you were talking about you know kids wanting to be pop stars the best pop star the best pop songs are written very quickly right this mass of of creative uh momentum builds up and then it sort of quickly becomes expressed yeah now pop songs are different because the structures are compressed there's only so many chords you can use and about 90% of them are about the same thing. Right. But, but nonetheless, those kinds of things, like writing poetry, writing songs, even writing plays to some degree, because mm -hmm. I'm a believer that most plays should be written quickly, hmm. I think can be written by people who don't have the, the, the inclination to sit down f from breakfast to lunch or however long it takes and grind away at it and then grind away at it. Mm -hmm. the next day but I think for me like even when I was covering the, the the baseball team all summer long I had a routine every day yeah you know I I slept late because I had to because I was writing into the middle of the night yeah. I woke up I had my breakfast <clears throat> I lived my life you know whatever did my household work got some exercise maybe or whatever mm -hmm. but then Actually, towards the towards the about the second of year that I was doing this, the routine actually got somewhat um, obsessive. Go for a run in the late afternoon when it was the most beastly time of the day. Which is your favorite time to run? Yes, yeah, sweat, uh, unimaginable amounts of sweat. Yeah, and take a shower, put on the exact same outfit, <laughs> which was too many clothing. Choices. I'm too many, too much clothing for the ballpark. Yeah. But that's what I wore every single day. Uh huh. Have my same two pens, my same little collection of notebooks and other paraphernalia that I would need voice recorder and whatnot to do interviews after the game. Yeah. Watch the game, always from the same place. Go down to the clubhouse, interview the manager and some ball players. Come back home. Usually, uh, talked to Heather for a while because she was often at the game with me. Yeah. We would talk a little about the game sometimes and then she would go to bed and that's when I would write and then mm -hmm. I would write the game story until it was done, let's say three in the morning. And then before I posted it, I would edit it. That was the point at which I would get up, pour myself a glass of whiskey on ice, edit over that glass of whiskey on ice and then hit 
send schedule 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. And that's when it would post the next morning. I, and over the course of five or six years, I must have done that, I don't know, 500 times or wow. however many games I went to. And, and that is oddly where I learned to write. Mm-hmm. Having at that point in my life already been writing as a journalist for some number of years, having written a lot of plays, having written a lot of other things, but wasn't really until then that I understood, oh, this is how this works. Yeah. Especially if you want to get better. You just have to keep doing it every day. So... What is compelling to you about the, the form, about writing? that you know I mean you're a, you've played music uh, I know you've dabbled in other art forms but what is it what is it about this particular art form and form of communication that is compelling to you I think there's I think there are three things that are happening there one is I've language has been important to me since I was a little kid Mm -hmm. I came out of the womb having a relationship with language that I can't really explain just like you had a relationship with rhythm from the time I first knew you 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 were already playing drums you you know your body your spirit your mind Mm mm-hmm came into being with that. There's certain things, you know, you could go to music school and all of that and you could get better, but the, f- the foundation for it, you came here with. The fundamental template was geared towards that. Yeah, you were already going there from, from the time you were old enough to toddle. Yeah. So, so, to some degree, I was already going towards language as a kid. I was writing stories when I was six. Yeah. And was always interested in the words first, language, Mm -hmm. people talking, what does it sound like? So there was that. The other way I would phrase the, the second thing, the way I would phrase the second thing is by citing this line by Don DeLillo, the novelist that I've always liked, which is very simple, but I think exactly gets it at it, which is writing is a form of concentrated thinking. Mm. and that's what it feels like to me writing intensifies deepens and and at the same time broadens what you can actually think about Mm -hmm. and there's another great line by the playwright Susan Laurie Parks that I read once where she said if you wake up I'm paraphrasing this but not by much if you wake up every day and say yes I'm a writer all of these things move towards you Mm. and I thought that was a really potent way of putting it because you will sometimes be writing and this happens to a lot of writers clacking away writing something and you suddenly are writing something that you didn't know you thought something moves towards you 
Uh, DeLillo has talked about that too. And then there's the f- sort of f- famous witty aphorism by, I think it's E.M. Forster. Uh, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Right. So, again, writing is a form of concentrated thinking. Yeah. It's funny because, uh, you know, I've had the occasion in the last two years to write. I've written 16 papers uh-huh. in <laughs> two years and none less than 10 pages, you know, so however many words that's come out to. And yeah, that's I found, book. yeah, I mean, I found the process to be extremely revelatory of of how I think, but also that sort of distillation process that you're talking mm-hmm. about, because sure, there's a bunch of research and I'm c- citing lots of different works as I go, but oftentimes it's not until I'm halfway done or almost done with the paper that I realize that I've written the wrong title and I'm writing about something completely different. Yeah. And this isn't about that. It's about this it's other about thing. This other thing. And that the, my big revelation was I can change the title. I can it, it know that this is mine, that there's some domain here that exists in and of itself. That's right. Within me that I'm moving all the pieces around and I don't have to present it until it makes sense to me. So that I, I can see what you're saying in a real clear parallel to my experience. The third thing, and you're getting close to the third thing I was going to talk about, which is that I also need to be writing because writing is a way to be engaged with other people who are thinking through all the reading one yeah. does. You, you, you read and you're, you can use whatever metaphor you want. You're a, a bird gathering stuff for a nest or whatever it is. But the, the reading is, is listening to the world yeah. in its most concentrated form because it's writing and it's most analyzed form, I suppose, as well. It's not raw nature, you know, it's sure. people thinking about it and having a conversation about it. And then it gets all inside of your own mind. And then you are, as a writer, participating even in your little way in this conversation that's been going on since time immemorial and that's just continuing all the time. That is a conversation about the world we live in. Yeah. It's funny. It's almost like, uh, you were talking before we started recording about how kind of hermetic you are, but that this engagement with other people's thinking and writing is a type of socialization. Absolutely. It's a timeless conversation and, um, and back and forth. Absolutely. You don't write. I, I can't speak for, I shouldn't be speaking for everybody. I don't write in my little room because my world is also a little room. Yeah. I'm trying to reach out back into it. There's a, the, the, I have this thing on my, on our, on the wall by our, the little place where Heather and I eat in the kitchen. That is a, I forget exactly what it's called. The, the 48 attributes of Torah, essentially Mm. what, what Jews should have in their hearts and study and, the skills, the attributes they should master. And most mornings I will just kind of glance at it, you know, look at one or two of them. And what's today's 
what's today's Torah for me? And uh, the, the other day, I, my eye landed on the one that said, uh, listening and adding thoughts thereto, which is not something you necessarily expect to see in a list of things like that. It's, it's actually two attributes, except that it lists them, gives them as one, intake and, and going out at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so increasingly, for me, I feel like I'm, I'm living as a writer in that way, listening and adding thoughts there too. It's kind of a spiritual reciprocity. Yeah, but it's a lot related too to what you were just saying. Like yeah. you're, you know, you're doing all your research that you're doing for the papers you were writing, and you're, you're coming up with a thesis, and you're making an outline or whatever you're doing, and then yeah. you start writing, and then you realize that the thoughts you're adding are in fact coming from a totally different place. And what's happened? I think what's happening there is that all these different things are coming in that you're reading or watching or whatever it is and then by the time the peculiarity of any individual person is done listening to all that and having it swirl around inside and then you put it back out you've just said something only you can say yeah and when I discover that I've written something that almost anybody could say that's when I realize I'm not really writing Interesting. I will sometimes write a nice line or even a whole long thing and just think, oh, anybody, this is nice, but any, or it's not nice. Anybody could have written it. Something is, something has not happened. Haven't been reaching deep enough or I've been too distracted by what I think people want to hear or the obvious thing one could say about something and that's usually when the piece needs to be discarded or you have to rewrite the whole thing or or whatever. So I think it's those three things. One, the thing that anybody who practices any discipline has, which is a natural connection to it, yeah. that is inexplicable, that you can attribute to DNA or God or the stars when you were born or whatever you mm-hmm. whatever metaphor or or even actuality you want to give it to and there's the uh the concentration of of an affinity into a more distilled form mm-hmm. and then there's the interaction with the world around you and for me reading books was always the place where the most world was happening. Yeah. Sure, it's definitely happening in those places where I attended bar all those years, but it's not. And that's just as valid and valuable in its own way, I yeah. think. But at the level of what, for lack of a better word, I would call meaning, it's, it's books or art generally travel is right up there I think a lot of writers have that feeling too like I need to see the world in order to write about the world which is why I've made it a point in my life to go to other places that I would not necessarily have a reason to go to I've 
you know, I went to Romania where my grand, great-grandparents came from. I also went to the Caucasus where I don't have any ancestry as far as I know. We were just, Heather and I were just interested in it. You went as far abroad as Azerbaijan, didn't you? We didn't did. You? We, got all the way, we got all the way to the Caspian. Yeah, we went to yeah. Baku. And, you know, I spent some time in Southeast Asia. And, yeah. and it doesn't necessarily have to be exotic. I was actually just telling a friend of mine last night that... Uh, when, during while I was covering the the baseball team, at one point I decided well, I would sometimes follow them to Charlotte or Norfolk, where you could basically just drive and come back in the same day or just stay overnight. But I decided mm-hmm. I want to go farther away, and so I I've, I spent a weekend following the team to Buffalo, a place I'd never been, had mm. scarcely thought of. But one of the teams that they played against was in Buffalo. So I went to Buffalo and I spent four days in Buffalo. And I just found that whole place to be amazing and totally like I had gone to a whole different universe. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing place. And it also wasn't at all. It was just that I had had some totally other experience that I could not have had had I not gone to Buffalo. That's amazing because, I mean, one of the things that, especially as an artist, at least in my experience, that's so rejuvenating about travel is the novelty the the you're out of completely out of time you're yeah everything is unfamiliar so you're looking at things through a completely new lens both a survival lens like how do i live here how do i manage what's up what's down but then also you know we've lived in durham most of our lives right I know every inch of, even though things are changing rapidly, I know every inch of this city. That's right. Um, so even like when I go to Asheville or, you know, some some place that I've been before, you're <clears throat> instantly submerged. In the unfamiliar. Know, in the unfamiliar. And yeah. so you now, you know yourself through that. You know new parts of yourself through that. So new <clears throat> responses come out. I think... I don't know what your experience is like, but that seems yeah, to be... Yeah, it opens up perceptual faculties. There's a great line in this book. I, I use this line in an earlier draft of my book about the trip to Romania. It's not in there now, but I use it on my on my travel blog that I was... A lot of which provided material that I rated for parts when I wrote my book. Mm-hmm. And I had read this book before I went to to the Balkans, which is where we started. is a travel book by a Polish writer who had spent time going to very strange places in the Balkans. And it's strange to him, not strange to the people who live there. It's important to qualify that. <laughs> and he's, there's a great line that I'm going to slightly misquote where he says, when you're in places like this, objects may remind you of things you know. Objects, situations, and places may remind you of things you know. But in the end, they are no more than what they are in fact, which is to say they don't have they have no association, no connection to you. And so everything becomes somewhat strange and heightened. And this is what you want as a as a writer or a painter or any artist. You want your perceptual faculties to be heightened. Yeah. So you're in I was in Albania having this experience of literally just putting my clothes in my backpack where I was aware of almost every 
movement of that. Like, what what is it like when you put your clothes in your backpack? I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've packed, but because I was doing it in this very strange place where I felt uncomfortable, I had just gotten to Albania a couple of days before, and I remember packing my bag to get out of this guest house I was staying in. It must have taken me 45 minutes mm-hmm. because I had to engage with what that felt like uh, mm. in a way that that I never really had before. It was packing a bag like you would do anywhere. Yeah. But except suddenly it wasn't. I also noticed that when I when I go when I go to travel, even sometimes when I'm traveling like 45 minutes away from here or something, I lose my appetite. Hmm. And I think it's because my body is saying we need to be taking in perceptually. We don't have room for so much food. Yeah. We're not going to dull the senses with yeah, intake right. of it's that kind. Eyes and ears and feet on the ground or whatever. But like it, it can't it can't be about sitting down in a restaurant or wherever and shoveling food into your mouth. That's like that's that particular sense of taste and the pleasure that goes with it. That just needs not to be here for a while. Yeah. And you need to be lighter on your feet in order to experience that stuff. And I think uh in a lot of ways, one of the hardest parts of writing is actually doing it with anything else in your life because all that other stuff is a clog. Kind of dilutes. It, it, it's really hard. It, it's, it's even hard sometimes just with my wife who supports my writing in maximal and cherished ways and would fight anyone to the death who tried to keep me from doing it. Mm -hmm. But even so, there's times when I almost have to say, I can't really listen to you now or I can't do these things that we're supposed to be doing because my brain just needs not to even think about it. Yeah, no tether to the mundane right now. Yeah, and at the same time it does, it's it's not like, writers are these special people who need to have an exemption from the daily tasks of the world. I actually like doing a lot of those tasks. Yeah. Uh, I like (coughs) taking care of my yard. I like cooking lunch, things like that. I even like, you know, paying the bills at the end of the month and being happy that I can pay them, which means that I just worked. But, uh, for me anyway, there's an exclusive space that has to be protected. Sure. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna sit there for three or four hours. And it's not just the hours. It's also some hours around it that just can't admit of anything else. Yeah. And I was gonna say before, this is interesting to me, you know, you some writers need to travel see the world I'm definitely one of them I would like to travel and then come back and not do anything for a while you know but then I think of writers like uh, the poet I'm not sure how he pronounces pronounced his name C.P. Cavafy have you read Mm, he he spent his whole life like working as a bureaucrat in I think Cairo trudge off to his job every day Mm -hmm. do his job somehow he found the time to write poetry and then he would go home I think he did that almost his whole life Philip Larkin was the same way and these people were poets Fernando Pessoa reminds me of him the uh, Portuguese yeah Pessoa uh who had all these heteronyms he called them he invented characters to write 
in. Yeah. But, you know, Larkin woke up every day at four o'clock in the morning, wrote his poetry, and then I believe he was a librarian, and he just went off and did that. And a lot of writers actually hate to travel. They don't want to be taken away from anything. That there's more of an inner landscape that they protect. Yeah, I'm just not interested. Yeah. And it amazes me that they still manage to have anything to write about. Huh. Because, it, you know, if your whole life is going to your job and then, I don't know, having a cocktail and then eating dinner and then going to bed and then waking up and writing again the next morning, I, to me it feels like you're going to run out of material. Little, but I guess they little don't. bit of Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Something like that, because <laughs> Larkin is an amazing poet. Right. So I don't... I'm always mystified and somewhat delighted that there's a life that the mind is leading. Yeah. The Walter Mitty life, I guess, that's making a world that that the body's not participating in. I'm off, I often wonder, especially with with creators like that, about their childhoods. Well, a lot of Larkin's poetry, a lot of writers' work is actually about their youth. There's yeah. a line somewhere that I don't remember where I read this. I'm sure it's famous and you could find it, but it says something like, "Everything that any writer is going to write about, they know by the time they're about 13." <laughs> You know, you know the the famous the famous opening line to one of Larkin's poems is, "They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, they may not mean to, but they do." <laughs> Which is another way of saying like, "I got all my material." Yeah, I'm I'm set for life. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, you know, eventually, things you experience catch up with you, and you you can write about adult experiences too. And you're reading, mm -hmm. which is living a life, right? You're you're writing about other books too, even yeah. if not explicitly but almost everything I've written in my life runs up until the time I'm about 30 yeah which is quite a long, a long time ago now the trip to Romania obviously broke past that because we went there when I was in my 40s mm -hmm. but uh, but even so a lot of that book is actually about things that happened to me when I was young yeah because the life changingness of that trip was actually what changed was my perception of what had happened to me and what my experiences were as a kid right. and a young adult and so on. Yeah. But it, everything is everything is anchored back in that. So yeah. Well, and and as you continue to look back, the things that happened to you or the context you find yourself in at any given point change and reframe. That's right. All those right. Or you just you remember something you'd forgotten. Yes. Because now you're. You went to Romania and you mm -hmm. remembered, oh, right, that's what that was. Yeah. Or that thing happened. I oft, I've been really thinking a lot about genetic memory and cultural memory, especially as, res, as relates to, you know, the African-American experience and a lot of, you know, the BLM movement that's coming up and how discounted that sort of institutional trauma or you know cultural memory has progressed through that that group of people I'll but tell he, you one one piece from my book yeah this is a pivotal scene in my book 
and it's true. It's a true story. The book is nonfiction. When, when I was in my late thirties, I spent a couple of months or maybe longer. I don't remember, uh, practicing holotropic breath work. Do you know what this is? Is this square breathing? Not, it's not exactly that. No, it's, it's a form of deliberate rhythmic hyperventilation. Okay. That is supposed to, I've heard of it. Help you release things, access things, and eventually mm. lead to a state of sort of druggy bliss. Mm-hmm. Uh, although <laughs> it's supposed to be more s- strictly therapeutic than that. So kind of dopaminergic, but also yeah, therapeutic. So once a week I would go to this woman's home office, home not office, studio or whatever you want to call it, lie on this table. She said, you need to make sure you bring a lot of towels because a lot of people will find that they sweat a lot during this thing. So she would, she has to, you need someone to talk you, you know, okay, breathe like this. Okay, now breathe like this. And eventually what happens is that through the hyperventilation, you're taking in an enormous amount of oxygen. Right. And what was happening to me every time I went there was that my muscles would become so rigid and tensed up that it was actually excruciating. And I would sweat profusely. I would sweat through three towels in a session easily, drench them, and and just be in in essentially agony for an hour. (laughs) And it was horrible, yeah. And the whole t- what little part of my consciousness was able to experience anything other than this excruciating muscular like uh you know lockjaw basically yeah was wondering like when's the part where this becomes therapeutic right. this doesn't feel therapeutic it feels like torture and one day this was happening and then i began to weep un- sob uncontrollably although because my face muscles had tensed up so much nothing was coming out so like these tears were just building up in my head so my head was throbbing and it felt like it was going to blow up and I think at this point the breath worker realized that she had told me I should clarify that you can have some of this experience like it can be uncomfortable but this was somewhere along the lines of my fourth or fifth session and things were going things were getting worse and I think at this point she decided she needed to sort of intervene a little bit because usually once you reached the breathing part, she would just sort of say, okay, keep going, you know, and then mm-hmm. stop talking. She said, Adam, do you, can I ask you a question? And through my ag- agony, I guess I said, yes, sure, you can ask me a question. She said, do you have any Jewish heritage? Mm. I said, yes, I do. And I don't remember if it was then or at the end of the session once my you know, my muscles had relaxed and I could be somewhat cogent again. I asked her, why did you ask me that question? And she said, because a lot of my Jewish clients have had experiences like the one you're having. She said, I think that there's an epigenetic inheritance of a sense of victimization huh. and pain yeah. that for Jews seems to get uh, triggered, or- provoked by this by this breath work evolved yeah and uh at the time i i mean i'm not a practicing jew i was raised outside of the faith it's only it was only ever a tangential part of my consciousness yeah and had never read the bible or anything like that don't you know don't go to synagogue nothing secular american jew and when we went to romania I don't know exactly what I thought, 
I was going to find. But what I mostly found was the legacy of the slaughter, persecution, eradication, and chasing out of the country of almost every Jew in Romania. Romania had the second most Jews in Europe on the eve of World War II. Only Poland had more. Yeah. About 800,000. <clears> By the time World War II ended, that population was less than a tenth of that number. Wow. So what I saw everywhere we went was was that, was this emptiness, this, like I said, eradication yeah. of the people that I had come from. And it wasn't until after that trip was over that I thought more about that experience that I'd had on the breathworkers table. And I should add, this is sort of the, one of the pretexts for the book, when we went to Romania so I could go see the land where my ancestors came from, uh, the day we got to Bucharest, we flew there from another country, I got sick and I stayed sick until the day we left three weeks later. Wow. The, with any, with this bizarre range of migrating symptoms that I couldn't, we couldn't even figure out what was wrong with me. And you're not prone to illness. No, I'm in good shape. Yeah. Uh, we tried rest, we tried different kind of medicines, <clears throat> nothing helped. Wow. Because I was having <laughs> genetic trauma or whatever you want to call it. Residual, yeah, this sort of that echo. Got, yeah, that got grabbed by this experience of seeing what had become of people that for the first time I understood were mine. Yeah. Right? So... Did those symptoms worsen? Did they... Did it come to a point? Because that was your your encounter of that location of your great-grandfather's was it, fairly late in that trip, right? Yeah. Yeah, we started in Bucharest. My relatives didn't come from there. Bucharest is an ugly town. <clears throat> it's a weird place. <laughs> a lot of those, a lot of those communist yeah. cities were like that. Uh, concrete blocks and stuff like so that. So bizarre. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it got worse in the sense that it just kept coming back. And at the moment when I really thought it was gone, that that was that was actually the next day was sort of the the very worst when then I got a fever and everything. Wow. At which point I I I, I took antibiotics. I was almost grateful to have the fever because then Amy said, "Why don't you go ahead and take those antibiotics?" Yeah. And th three days later, nothing had changed. Wow. Even those didn't really work. They may have taken three days to work, but really what happened was we left Moldavia, <clears throat> which was the province of uh, Romania where my great-grandparents had lived, which was one of the most Jewish places in the world, I should add, wow. around the time that my great-grandparents emigrated. It's also kind of a, a gypsy, Romania, uh, Rom, what's the word? Romani, yeah. Romani strong That too. And I always assumed that I had a little gypsy in me because of my coloring, yeah. but I, I think in fact I don't. Huh. I, don't think I, I don't think I have any clue why I look the way I do. And I think I had some sort of naive hope that I would go to Moldavia and see people that looked like me. But no, they, there are no Jews left in Moldavia to speak of. Wow. There's like a few hundred maybe. Uh, there's a couple synagogues. but So this is a strange question without prompting you to talk too much about the, the book. Do you feel in any way that the process of writing helps either clarify, subdue, or resolve those genetic traumas has that has that process I don't think there's any resolution okay 
there's getting closer to things and getting a broader and richer understanding of them. Is it an and embrace? And a spiritual connection. Writing it was an embrace. It was saying, yeah. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to look at this and <clears throat> and uh, live inside it. Yeah. Because writing a long project is living inside the thing. Right. It's another reason why it's hard to do anything like, you know, uh, cook dinner that day sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But to answer your question in purely experiential terms, this is what happened to me while I was writing that book. First, I came up with a case of chillblains. Do you know that? what chillblains are? I don't. I've heard it. Chillblains are also <clears throat> called perniosis. It sounds like a 16th century disease, chillblains. <laughs> the consumption. What it, what it actually is, is the body's response to uh, rapid changes in temperature from cold to hot. Huh. And we were at the time in a place that was pretty cold, and I'm not used to that. Durham's not very cold. And I was going out for a walk every day in the cold and the snow, and then immediately getting into a hot bath. Uh. Now, I would be willing to wager that it wasn't just because of that that my body had this extreme reaction. I've certainly gone from cold to hot before like that without getting chillblains. So what happens is it causes the capillaries in your extremities to, to burst. Oh, shrink and burst cold, hot, and your fingers and toes swell up like sausage links. It got to the point where one morning I, I was trying to cut something and I couldn't even grab, I couldn't even grasp the knife. Wow. So that happened. And the other thing that happened, you're a little canary in the coal mine, was that about, um, it took me about three months to write the first draft of that book. In and uh, around the midpoint, one day I was sitting in my chair and I was having a little discomfort in my back and discovered that this little nodule that had been lodged inside my shoulder blade since as long as I could remember, 20 years, my whole entire adulthood. And at one point I even had my doctors look at it to make sure it wasn't cancer and they said oh it's like a, it's a it's a fatty tissue deposit or it might be a lipoma, lipoma is it yeah. is it bothering you no is it getting bigger no don't worry about it uh one day it was like itching and then it got a little red and every day that i sat down in my chair to write the book it was bothering me more and more and then it started swelling and heather my wife looked at it and said, yeah, that, that's not just your imagination. It, it, something's not right there. Yeah. So we, we went to the doctor and the doctor said, I think what that is is actually a, a cyst. And they usually respond to a steroid injection. Would you like to do that? He said, I can take it out, but that's basically surgery. Mm -hmm. And usually it'll, a steroid <clears throat> injection will calm it. Yeah. He gave me a steroid injection, did the opposite of calm it. It blew it up. It became like the size of a plum. Oh my God. It, and it was so big and painful that I had to sleep on my side and then I could barely sleep at all and it was like uh, a crisis. So I, I did actually have to have surgery to have it removed right while I was writing my book and understood there's not really any resolving this. Yeah. The act of revisiting the experience also made me ill. Yeah. 
And I can imagine having another physical reaction to whatever next engagement I have with the, the thing. I don't know. Like maybe the day I sell the book to a publisher, you know, I'll develop a nosebleed or something. I have no idea, but I think, I think that was certainly the experience of what it felt like to write about it. My body got involved in that process. wild do you feel like when you're playing drums do you feel like something is happening other than you just playing drums yeah so it it depends on sort of where I'm at in the practice if I'm if I've been well rehearsed and my chops are fluid and and I can articulate, then, then I get to move into a different place where, where there isn't any sort of conscious connection to, to what I'm doing. It's more of an interpretation of what the feeling is or the emotional quality of something, and then to be able to play that in more or less a virtuosic fashion on the instrument. That hasn't happened for a while. But because you got to maintain the chops, you have to. Yeah, it's yeah. you know, it's like any any skill. If you don't maintain it, gets rusty. That's right. It's like a, a tool for That's sure. Right. Um, I actually talked to uh, Michael Mead uh, several months back for the podcast, and I met him long when I first started working with Uma with my theater company on Vashon Island. He officiated a wedding that we attended. It was actually the managing director of, of the theater company who was getting married. And Michael Mead co-officiated with a, um, a West African shaman named Maladoma Somme, who's written several books on ritual. And, and at the reception afterwards, um, you know, there was a, some drums and I picked up a djembe and I started playing with the group and some other musicians. And as I was playing, I saw Maladoma from across the gathering, and he turned and locked eyes with me and very purposefully strode right up to me and stood next to me while we played and we finished. And he put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eyes and said, you know how to make a drum talk. You have to play drums every day for the rest of your life. And then he left. <laughs> and it was... You know, I'm, heavy weight to throw down. Yeah, I was. I think I was twenty-five or twenty-six at the time, and but it was so striking. And I shared that with Michael, and he said, "That's quite a a benediction. How have you maintained that?" And you know, I said not as religiously as I would like to admit, but um, I think about it all the time. Almost any time I pick up an instrument, I think about that, and and that there is that there's a that I have a responsibility to the instrument almost that that's what it implied that since you have the either this the innate 
you know, like you said, the genetic predisposition or the template that you have some sort of mandate to to use that or articulate that or speak through that. So it's I've definitely there have been several times I've played with bands and people have come up to me after the show and have expressed to me how enjoyable it was to watch me play which is always nice to hear and and you can take it with a grain of salt like you know I'm not sure what you're on but it was delivered with a real a very the same kind of intensity as his as Melodoma's utterance that you've got something here that you should hold on to that this is pretty cool mm -hmm. so yeah you know hearing you talk about writing makes me think of that that you know when I've read your writing it's always been very invigorating you're really just trying to make the best sentences you can mm -hmm. like you have ideas and things you want to say and and describe or characters who are going to speak dialogue and so on and and you're attuned to all that but ultimately writing is basically just like trying to write a very good sentence and then write another one and then another one and it's why it's why f for me I think most writers probably feel this way most writing is actually revising like sure that, the editing process if you get in a groove <clears throat> It takes care of itself. Yeah. And actually, there are times when I'm writing, if you, if you like, you know, you, you, if like in the Susie Lor Susan Laurie Parks metaphor, the things move toward you enough so that you're actually enveloped by the things, you yeah. can actually just write really good sentences as though well, you're playing is, keyboard. It's flow state. It, it actually feels like, it feels yeah. like a physical activity to me if I'm really in it, like yes. in rhythmic, like even the way I'm typing. I mean, I was not a very good keyboardist, but I feel like I'm playing keyboard like music uh -huh. you know and but it's almost more rhythmic like pacing and and because you're hearing the sentence and the sentence starts to dictate literally the pacing with which you're writing it mm -hmm. and that that is what you want right that's what all writers dream of where you just like you get in the zone and even though there is not that shaman locking eyes with you across the room physically yeah. spiritually there is that guy is saying you're doing this you're making that drum talk mm -hmm. so you want to get in there I would estimate that for me, that's about 10% of the actual amount of time I spend writing. Yeah. The rest of the amount of time is just playing your scales, basically, and screwing them up and and going back in and revising your scale mm -hmm. and understanding this sentence, these things need to be flipped around. This word isn't right. The whole order of this paragraph is wrong or whatever it is, That's but that that really it's like writing a good sentence and trying to write another good sentence. And I find that increasingly the writing that I like to read has much less to do with the content of the story uh -huh. and much more to do with whether I feel like the writer is writing good sentences. I don't know if you've read W.G. Sebald. I just started reading him. Mm -mm. him. He was, he's, it's not quite right to say a cult writer because he was actually rumored to be a Nobel candidate around the time that he died in 2000 one I think but and Sebald wrote in German so I'm also reading his translator yeah uh, who was a, is a poet so and those sentences are just incredible huh. and 
I read one of his novels and then I just immediately reread the whole book out loud. It took forever because he writes very long, slow sentences, but they are dynamite sentences. Huh. And the book is almost about nothing. It has no unified plot. It has a vague, diffident protagonist. It is not even clear that it's a novel or what in fact it is. And yet I could just read those sentences for an hour at a time and not get even remotely interested in anything else in the world. Yeah. And so it, it helped me remind myself that if you want to be writing, you can think about the things you have to say and the ideas you're trying to express, the story you want to tell, the characters you want to draw, whatever it is. But actually your job, if you think of writing as a job, which it kind of is, because yeah. you have to do it some number of hours a day sitting at your desk, the job is trying to write good sentences. Just mm. like the job, I remember, the, speaking of drumming, I remember the, reading this really cool thing that Jody Stevens, the big star drummer, yeah. once said. He became a producer later, so he understands sound yeah. really well. And he was talking, about, I was reading a book about the first big star album, or maybe the second big star album. So it's a great record and a great sounding record. Yeah. It's engineered beautifully. <clears throat> Did he produce that? He didn't produce it, I don't think. Maybe the band produced it. Uh, but they had, the reason those two Big Star records sound so good was that they were from Memphis. Mm -hmm. They had access to the Stax Ardent studio after hours. They knew somebody there who basically said, after we're done recording soul and R&B, which is basically what that label existed to do, yeah. you guys can come in here and use the equipment. So they had what at the time was state-of-the-art recording equipment wow. to make their Anglophile Beatle maniac power pop or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And there was this great line where Jody Stevens was talking about rec the recording techniques. And I think he was talking about working with somebody else and, and trying to take this drum track and no matter what they did, it wouldn't sound good. Put this effect on it or that effect on it or mm -hmm. change the EQ or whatever. And he said, and I realized the problem was that the drummer wasn't making a good sound. Hmm. the actual stick on the skin was a bad contact somehow at which point he realized this track is unsalvageable and I don't know I don't remember the rest of it but I remember mm -hmm. him saying the drummer isn't making a good sound and I think it's kind of fundamental isn't it isn't it and yet it's so easy to forget like but my story is good mm -hmm. my characters are interesting my ideas are topical whatever it is if you're not writing good sentences you're not making a good sound yeah it doesn't really matter what else you do maybe an editor could help you maybe your book is so timely that people will read it anyway i'm sure when i was covering baseball because i was writing in the middle of the night i wrote a lot of bad sentences but i also had people who wanted to read about the game the night before yeah so it didn't really matter that a lot of my sentences were flabby or rambly or whatever and I'm a digressive writer in the first place so I had to try to do whatever I could to reel that in mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not confident that I was successful at that but I think <clears throat> I think I have the experience increasingly of just trying to make a good sound yeah. in the first place and then maybe the rest will take care of itself but the making the good sound part isn't all that easy
Just like you have to sit at your, you have to sit at your kit every day. You have to not only tune the kit, but you have to make sure that it's it's an extension of you. That's right. And that you're playing truthfully. Yeah, for sure. The piece of wood that you're holding is just part of your arm, right? Right. So, I, yeah, I'll never really forget that line. The drummer's not making a good sound. No wonder <laughs> I can't get this to sound good. That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I you know, easy for him to say in a way. Jody Stevens was not only a good drummer, he also understood the studio and his drums sounded amazing and he was a yeah i mean those those technician just yeah those drums on radio city are awesome sounding yeah uh some of those led zeppelin recordings Mm -hmm. those some of those recordings are actually not that good sounding i think but those guys could play right they made such good sounds that even though they were in some cases not captured very well right it i mean john bonham is hammering away at your spirit right because he could he could play yeah he could make he doesn't get enough credit actually for how much tone and richness everything i think a lot of people think of him as just a hammerer and he definitely was well and how much of i heard someone talking about zeppelin about how you could get four other people to play the same music and it would sound completely different even if you had a highly Right. competent virtuosic guitarist and drummer there's it's not just that each of them are so good at what they do it's that the alchemy of the four of them they're making good sounds on their own That's and a very, they're yeah combining to make a four you know a another thing that's a very good point it's the it's them all together yeah and somebody was pointing out i was <clears throat> speaking of zeppelin that <clears throat> bonham instead of just playing a basic 4-4 backing track sometimes his drumming is actually playing the same rhythm as Page's guitar yes so he's participating in this yeah in this thing directly rather than just supporting it the very first track in the very first Zeppelin album which I'm forgetting the name of um, Communication Breakdown? no it's uh, it's it has him Bonham's playing a, a a cowbell that for the light for the longest time as a kid growing up listening to it I th- assumed was an overdub and then I saw a video of him playing and he's playing this completely syncopated cowbell rhythm with his right hand that matches everything that Page and um, uh, the bassist John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones is playing. Yeah. But nothing that he's playing. Huh. And it's <laughs> it blew my mind when I when I saw that and realized that oh, he's he's able to articulate that on such a completely different level and you know, there's that third thing of them playing together and him listening and complimenting that he had a voice yeah right absolutely and I, I, I this was something else I was maybe gonna say before about writing when I used to teach writing I, I ran a creative writing program out of uh, Duke summer programs for a number of years we would ask our students to write us a letter before they came what are you wanting out of this yeah. this uh, writing workshop that you're coming to a lot of them would say I want to find my voice mm-hmm really important I have to have to have my own voice have to find my voice and it it took me a long time to know what to say think or do about that but I realized 
you are actually going to find your voice if you stop worrying about that at all and go and imitate other voices yeah. like every musician does. Every, almost every musician starts out saying, I want to sound like Jimmy Page on my guitar. Right. I want to sing like John Lennon, whatever it is, Al Green. Uh, you imitate and you imitate and you imitate. And eventually this thing called your voice, which is you saying it the way only you can say it, yeah. comes out. It finds you. You don't find your voice. Yeah. It, it just like Susan Laurie Park said, it moves toward you. It's just the same with an infant learning language, yeah. right? They're not trying to find their own voice. They're just trying to communicate and they're mimicking. They pull this, they hear this word out of somebody, they hear this word out of somebody. And so it it gradually, eventually becomes their own thing. It is, you you can't help it. It it is and of itself. It's in there, just in the way that it was in there for you to play drums by the time you were uh, getting your first tooth. Yeah. But the only way it's going to come out is by that mimicry and to some degree as a writer the mimicry is just reading Mm -hmm. this is the way other people say this yeah this is the way other people speak and the way they write this is other people making good sentences or in some cases bad sentences i will play to this day and i mean i I will hear stuart copeland in the way that i play the kick on odd beats or you know triplets on the hi-hat because he was your first that was my that was yeah that was my yeah, imprint. Yeah, you were you were learning from Stuart Copeland by the time you were in middle school. Yeah. And I think one of the things you recognized in him was that he had he was doing things on drums that nobody else was doing. So that some of that's in there for you, but he was also allowing you to understand drumming is something that I, Brad, am going to do the way I do it and I'm not just going to sit there and play a generic session players four four backing track right like this is there's a voice here that he had and that uh you know elvis costello's drummer had yeah my cousin who's a professional drummer mm-hmm. recently toured with elvis as a drum tech wow and so it was like his fantasy world he got to sit next to um oh, i just forgot elvis's drummer's name pete thomas basically sat next to Pete Thomas all night long while Pete Thomas played the drums and he said I finally realized that most of what I do as a drummer is basically from him Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's not as if Stephen my cousin sounds like Pete Thomas when he plays the drums he doesn't at all but something in there is in him too and it mixed with whatever my cousin brought into the world with him yeah and like you're the way you hit the kick drum is Stuart, but that also made it possible for you to play the way you play yeah it's just man in a suitcase <laughs> and then taken to my own places i i spent when i was an undergraduate i spent at least half of my four years obsessed with two playwrights i read everything they wrote I wouldn't shut Is up about them Stoppard and Mamet? No it, it's not even remotely close to Stoppard and Mamet it was Mac Wellman and Len Jenkin two playwrights who never got to be particularly famous who were sort of like hip cult downtown New York playwrights uh, who 
made no kind of inroads into any but the most indie circles in their careers. They're both still alive, I think. And I, I read those plays and just thought, oh, there's a completely other way to write plays that is not the way Mamet and Stoppard yeah. write them. There's a totally different way to think about what dialogue does, about what action is, about what a stage looks like while a play is happening on it and everything like that. And then I started writing plays that were basically just imitations, bad imitations of theirs. Yeah. And But there's something about the nature of, like the core nature of creativity in that. Like I, and this is a lot of what's behind my research and my studies in, in this podcast is that everybody has that innate ability to be creative, but it's only through imitation. It's only through sort of the exploration of finding, you know, whatever that voice is as it comes out that you discover how it is that you either express or manufacture something new or novel or genuine honest but the best means of getting to it is the is the inverse mm -hmm. of attempting to stamp out your identity as a as a writer or a painter or whatever you are the best way to get to it is actually just to imitate everybody else sure if you look at early jackson pollock it's figural painting uh -huh. that a lot of people a lot of painters could have done the stuff we know as Jackson Pollock came later right? because he spent all that time doing what he did to paint like everybody else yeah. and then this other this other painter emerges out of that it's not true for everybody there are some writers that and artists who are, seem to just come right out of the gate with I a keep whole thinking new voice. of there's a, a Gore Vidal quote he wrote the introduction to uh, um anthology of short stories by Paul Bowles and he said Bowles writes as if Moby Dick had never been written <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that because it's I wouldn't be surprised to find that he never read Moby Dick but that it's he's discarded so much but you also when you listen he was also a student of Aaron Copeland's and you listen oh. to his early compositions and it's Aaron Copeland you know and then he you know, discovered Edgar Varese and all these other really quirky um, sort of modern composers and he started to find his own voice and the same thing was true with his fiction. Like he started to just write this eerie other world, what happens when, you know, worlds east meets west, worlds collide and and the western mind is <laughs> the victim of, of that collision. Philip Glass, too. His early work doesn't sound like Philip Glass. Right. The Philip Glass we know. Right. It's really interesting to think about the that particular development that just starts with with just trying to sound like those people. Mm -hmm. And then this other thing starts to happen. Like, I'm aware that I have a voice as a writer. Yeah. Like, I, I write sentences that are of a particular cadence and tone and all that but I'm not conscious of ever attempting to do that I'm actually usually trying to have less style when I write interesting be clearer be shorter be more matter of fact right just say what it is and yet by the time I'm done writing it I'm quite aware that I've failed at that project 
because some other part of me is demanding to right have its space. out of the infinite variety of words and combinations you could have used this came out of you because of you yeah even though i was yeah. trying as hard as i could not to do that <laughs> that's the other way you find your voice <laughs> by trying to shut it up right you know? <laughs> what what little voice ekes through when you're trying to muffle everything else and there are times when i write things that i think are just as plain as day yeah and and even almost a little bit boring and somebody will read it and say that that piece of writing had so much style it did <laughs> i thought i was just saying it just the facts but yeah. that's clearly not what's happening right just like just like with a lot of musicians too where they they say i'm just trying to what's the dude that plays for wilco the drummer for wilco glenn kachi i think his name is sounds right he's a pretty busy personality drummer like you can you hear the drums and he at one point I read an interview with him where he said I'm just trying to to support Jeff Tweedy's lyrics interesting that, that to me is the only really important thing here yeah but and it works it works and when you hear it through that that lens or that filter it makes total sense I'm the same way I react and respond like a jazz drummer would to what you know if someone does something on a guitar or the vocals do this or there's an emotional landscape that's being described with the vocals my job is to underscore and supplement not yeah. to over achieve or take take attention away right so we're should we break this off yeah i finish the show up by asking guests you can take this at whatever level you want what's the question that's not being asked right now it's funny i i ask a similar question when i conduct interviews what should i have asked you that i didn't mm. <clears throat> it's probably something like why would anybody do this in the first place why would you choose to spend three or four or six hours a day sitting there staring at your piece of paper or your screen doing this in the first place the world doesn't need more books doesn't it? we have plenty of writing especially now that we have the internet <clears throat> so the easy answer is just pure ego and maybe that's the only answer but there's also you were talking about the template of you that there's your that language is how you interface with the world so apart from being a an egotistical act it almost seems like a a self uh, like a necessary almost like an act of salvation is the words that are coming to me is that accurate i guess what i'm interested in <clears throat> is that given that yes i i had an instinct for language when i you know when i was young i was reading before most kids were and writing before most kids were all that's in there and obviously in a fundamental way one writes because one 
has these emotions and ex- experiences that are oh, in some cases overpowering and need you need to find something to do with them you know you you most of writing is in some way or another driven by pain mm. or by a sense of lack for me anyway and 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 uh, Dennis Johnson said he had three rules for writers about why to write, but one of them, one of them is write in exile, as if you will never get home again. But writing is an attempt to get back. So there's this desperation in it. Okay, and I feel that when I write a lot. Like if I could only have this back, even if it's something I've never had in my life, you know. Uh, and and uh, I know I'm doing something right when I get so in there that I actually start to get emotional while I'm writing, and then I just try to keep doing it as long as I can until I have to stop. So all of that is in there for sure. I'm aware of that. But I guess my question is, there's a lot of people who come into the world with an affinity for language or rhythm or could be natural painters. But why do some people keep doing it? Why am I still here doing this at my age? I'm not making any money at it. Every now and then I make a little. I've written three books in the last five years. Two of them weren't even good enough to publish and I didn't try. They're just sitting in files in my computer. I don't, it's not good for your body to sit down for hours at a time. So I'm not doing it for my physical health. Yeah. It's not good for your social life because you're just sitting alone in a room. And in fact, it's actively bad for your social life because all of this engagement with the world you could be having, you're deliberately not having. And sometimes you feel like when you're working on the same sentence or paragraph over and over again, you're going absolutely crazy. I've written, I've rewritten, like any writer, I've rewritten some paragraphs so many times I forget what they were about. Yeah. And so what, I guess, I guess that's the question, like, about why do you do this? I know why one originally starts doing it, but why, why does anybody keep at it, especially people who, for whom it's not a career? Don DeLillo made his living writing novels. Yeah. And it probably still does, even though he's almost 90. But, and for them, it's a job. You read Philip Roth's novels. We, Heather and I read one not long ago, and it's, it was a really good book. But you're also aware, this is a person who understands that this is his job. This is what he does for a living. He writes novels. This is an example of one of the products he makes. Mm-hmm. A really good one. And he was a great novelist. I'm not even remotely saying that he was sure. just some mechanical hack. If it's for... Something other than that. I'm kind of fascinated with all the things that a person could do with these hours. These very finite hours we have on this planet. That at my most anxious, I feel slipping away from me terribly. This is what I choose to do with them. (laughs) Yeah. Still, and cannot actually imagine stopping doing with them. Whether or not anything ever gets published, or whether or not I make another nickel from any of this, and I should qualify that by saying I'm—I wrote a query letter for 
literary agents. I wrote a synopsis. I wrote a proposal. I've rewritten my query letter 15 times. I'm trying to get an agent. I'm trying really hard to make money at this and get my book published. But if I don't, I don't care. Right. <laughs> I'm going to write my next book anyway. That's gravy. Yeah. And uh, that's the part of it that that is the 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 question that I, I don't really ask very often because it's at this point habitual and compulsive in a way that doesn't I don't need to ask. But that's what it is. Why are we why are we doing this? Why do you want to play drums? Why do you want to write a book? These these things that that people do with the hours where they don't have to do something else. I don't have to eat dinner. I don't have to go to the bathroom. I don't have to make my living. Why this? There's, it occurs to me that there's something of a almost spiritual practice, Yeah, you know, to it that, that you find a measured meaning in, in the continuation of it. Like I keep thinking about your ritual with writing about the, the bulls. Mm-hmm. That the writing was, was a part of it, but it was not the entirety of it. Oh no, not at it's, all. It's the ritual of being there, and and the act and everything surrounding the act, and not to say that it's, you know, to reduce it to an identity or something like that, but that there is something in that process that is, yeah, that provides meaning. Yeah, and the reason I'm getting emotional even listening to you talk about this, this has been on my mind a lot lately, because I, I, I wrote a book about, about baseball, one of the books that I deemed not good enough and is comfortably, you know, moldering in a computer file, but I want to write another one. Because what I understood after I wrote that book and why that book didn't work in the first place was that the reason I was spending all those hours sitting in the baseball park watching the game and then spending a whole nother bunch of hours sitting in front of my computer writing about the game and often spending part of the day reading stuff online so that I could write more about the game, learning statistics and stuff like this, was that what that book was actually trying to be about that I avoided because I wasn't ready to deal with it was this... um, this abruptly ended relationship with my stepfather mm-hmm. from whom I learned everything I knew about baseball. Right. And with whom I went to baseball games in that park over there when yeah. I was a kid many, many times. Yeah. And next to whom I sat and learned and, and so on. And when he abruptly left when I was 14, that part of my life was left unfinished. Yeah. There was a piece of, of damage that got inflicted mm-hmm. right there and that I never really addressed. I, in fact, cut him out of my life after that, even though he attempted to stay in it. And the spiritual practice part of dealing with that was the sheer number of hours I spent in my late 30s and early 40s sitting in that ballpark next to his ghost, essentially, and sitting in front of my computer with him more or less looking over my shoulder, right? 
uh, unaware that that's what was happening. I was just writing. Yeah. I was just saying like the Bulls lost six to two or whatever. You know. <laughs> uh, but that that's that's where it was. There, there's this line. This was in, this was in the the original attempt to write this book that I had, that I essentially borrowed from another writer. Uh, that goes, uh, the only paradise, the only true paradise is the paradise that has been lost. That's from Proust. It's a very famous line in his book, and he mm-hmm. repeats it, I think, at some point later in the book. I had the awareness that the paradise, the ballpark, was still there. But the person who introduced it to me wasn't. That's what had been lost. And if I'm going to make this book work on second attempt, it has to be about that. But the practice of getting to that place was three and a half hours at the ballpark, four hours at the computer. Go to bed, wake up, do it again the next day. I'm glad you asked me that question. Me too. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, my friend. What do we have in common? We breathe, we eat, we sleep, and we dream, we love, we cry, we fight, we make up, and we play. Play lets us discover new parts of ourselves. In play, we expand our potential, we feel safe, we trust. In that safety and trust, we experiment with what we can imagine. Better art, better us, a better world for ourselves, our families, our friends, our communities, our shared humanity, a common good. That's what Carolina Commons does. We take the world away for a while to give people the chance to see new perspectives, to listen to new voices from others and from our own internal worlds before rejoining and participating in the world renewed. We help people, teams, and communities connect to their inherent creative voice and to re-envision the world. With new skills, new voices, and new visions, we can help one another create a better future. Visit www.carolinacommons.org to learn more about how you can take your imagination, innovation, and problem solving to the next level. Carolina Commons, uncommon creativity for all.